You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. For months now, and this may seem strange at my late moment of life, 68, I've been trying to jettison as many friends as I can, and I'm frankly surprised more people don't do it as a simple and practical means of achieving well-earned, late-in-the-game clarity. Lived life, especially once you hit adulthood, is always a matter of superfluity leading on to lessness. Only, in my view, it's a lessness that's as good as anything that happened before, Plus, it's a lot easier. None of us, as far as I can tell, are really designed to have that many friends. I've done reading on this subject, and statistics from the Coolidge Institute, unfriendly to begin with, show that each of us devote a maximum of 40% of our limited time to the five most important people we know. Since time invested determines the quality of a friendship, having more than five genuine friends is pretty much impossible. Richard Ford introduced the character of Frank Bascombe in his novel, The Sports Writer. Bascombe returned in Ford's Penn Faulkner and Pulitzer Prize winning novel, Independence Day, and in The Lay of the Land. His previous novel was Canada. His new novel is Let Me Be Frank With You. Thank you for joining me. Nice to get to talk to you, Rick. I hope you'll excuse me if sometime during the course of this conversation I accidentally slip and call you Frank. <laughs> That's all right. It happens to me sometimes. And, and I just think, well, that just means that one of us is plausible. <laughs> you know, I was wondering, I was thinking about this, that back when you first created Frank, and especially when you took him into the real estate business, that that was such a canny move because a real estate salesman, I think, proves to be a perfect cultural bellwether for America. And so I'd like you to talk about, was that a a deliberate decision on your part for that reason? Well, all decisions that one makes in novels turn out to be deliberate decisions because you can, if you find that they're not good decisions, undo them and then make them in another way. So while certain things get onto the page, uh, unexpectedly, sometimes, they always are finally intellected before you decide to leave them in. Uh, and I think you're right that real estate, and Frank being a real estate, did turn out to be a kind of spiritual barometer for the time in which those books took place, and then he's uh, putatively living, but I absolutely stumbled into it. You know, um, canny, I'm glad you think it's canny. It was totally totally a matter of practicality. Frank had been a sports writer in the, in the sports writer, and I didn't want to rehearse the same material in another phase of his life, so I had to give him a new profession. And the profession that I knew most about, just as a walking around average citizen, was the real estate profession. I mean, I, I had been throughout my life in the front seats of so many big, you know, El Camino, and I guess it wouldn't be an El Camino, would it? Um, Crown Victorians and big Cadillacs being driven around by realtors. And I had come to love realtors and come to think that they were sort of associated with, you know, the most important decisions we make, how we make our wives happy how we make our children, if we're unfortunate enough to have any, happy. 
um, where we will live and where we will earn a living and how we will draw some sense of our prosperity if we have any. So, so I, I thought, well, this isn't a bad decision. It, it's, it's a decision that's plausible again. And also, for me, it's important to know what the characters that I write about do for a living. Coming from a working class environment, as, as, as I did, when my father would tell me about someone, the first thing he would tell me was what this person did for a living. And then I could begin to sort of, as a child, understand what his, what his gravity was, if he had any, or what ballast he had in his life. That's so interesting. And, you know, the other aspect of a real estate agent, I was thinking, is that like Raymond Chandler's detectives, they have access to all levels of society with equality to all those levels of society. When you're dealing a real estate dealer, when you're dealing with somebody who is low income and you're selling them a low income house, you're their pal. If you're selling a mansion to a millionaire, you're also their pal. Precisely. Not that I was particularly cued into that when I made Frank a realtor. Only in, only in later days has it occurred to me that, that you have to make characters be just in the way that you have to make the settings of stories be. Able to absorb and represent everything that you know. So in, into a realtor, as you say, you get the high and the low. You get, you get a character who can be witty and brainy but you can also have a character who is perhaps mendacious, mercenary, corporeal, instinctual. And all of these things make for, for me anyway, a richer brew in the character. Because Frank is sort of all those things in one way or another. He's so enjoyable to read. And as you slipped back into this voice, you have give us four linked stories here that I, to me, feel like a novel. I called it as a novel open the thing and it feels like it. It has that togetherness, I guess, of a novel. Uh, did you conceive of these stories separately? How did you slip back into this voice? Um, the voice is never absent from me insofar as I go on making <clears throat> notes in my notebook in Frank's voice. Uh, I made one this morning. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah. Should I just put FB by the note if I think that Frank could say it or think it or it could describe something that he does. But I don't have any destination for notes that I'm making in my notebook now. It's just pleasurable to be thinking in his tonalities. But it, as I say, it was, it was always available to me. And when I wrote the first of these stories, which is called I'm Here, which is the one most directly about Hurricane Sandy, all of these stories pertain to Hurricane Sandy, 2012. Uh, I, I didn't have really a, an, an, an aspiration to write four. It's just that when I wrote one, then I realized that my conceit which was to write about the consequences of Hurricane Sandy, that consequences that the media wouldn't necessarily finger, that I could go on writing more. And then I thought four is a good number, and I didn't want to work too hard. So altogether, four turned out to be what I did. And, and when I got to writing the fourth, which I did mm, almost about a year ago now, I actually sat down and I remember saying to Christina, my wife, I said, you know, I've got to write the fourth of these. I don't have a clue. <laughs> you know, as you're speaking with me, I have to say it's so interesting to experience this because you're saying things that are full of wisdom, you're accumulated wisdom as a writer, but you're also very funny. And this is the thing that makes Frank Bascom so amazing is that 
he says things that are just like pearlescent gems of wisdom, but he, they're all leavened with this kind of humor. And I think that you show the power of those two walking hand in hand. One wouldn't work without the other. I think that's probably right in these books, that without some leavening humor, uh, Frank's gravity as a character, his sort of preoccupation with first principle considerations would weigh heavy on the reader. I mean, I, I don't have it in me. It's native to me to, uh, to take these kinds of things uh, seriously uh, and also um, with humor. My mother, you know, I was a terrible student. I was always in the principal's office. I was always being sent home. There were always notes floating back and forth about me from the teachers to my mother. We lived right next door to the school. It was horrible. Oh, my. Oh, Christ. But my mother, whenever I would, you know, because I was dyslexic and no one knew I was dyslexic, so I was always, as they say, acting out. And my mother would always say to me, the comedian, she would say, you're always the comedian, aren't you? And the truth of the matter is, I am, <laughs> at least to myself. I think the world is a really funny place. And here we are in Frank's point in life, writing about death and his friends dying and you know, throwing friends out the window and you know, taking words out of your vocabulary, dealing with the aches and pains of elder life. What can you do if you're not going to laugh about it? It's, this is one of the funniest books I've read this year, I think. It's, it's really hilarious. And I love the way that you um, set this up. It's really interesting just to read the, to see some of the sentence structures you use. Like in the very opening paragraph, there's this great kind of, you hone in, start with something general, hone in on something specific, and then come back out to the general with a kind of a, a contrast. And I think the writing is just so beautiful in that. Steinbeckian is what that is. That, <laughs> that little strategy is a strategy practiced by John Steinbeck. If you ever read Steinbeck's spectacular story uh, called Chrysanthemums, that's what you'll see happening. There's this big, wide panorama display. Uh, described in paragraph by paragraph by paragraph, it hones in on something very specific. And but but once that sort of celestial context is provided at the beginning, then you have ac- you have access to it anytime you want to. So that's what I mean. I don't. I wasn't saying <clears throat> when I wrote that. Oh, I'm going to do what Steinbeck did. But I read Steinbeck a long time ago. Nobody talks about Steinbeck much anymore. Of course, we're in California, so we would talk about it. But uh, on the other hand, Steinbeck was a wonderful writer. And wonderful in that just those kinds of practical considerations of structure and how he gives rise to the opportunity for the writer to take on large subjects. You consider all of the biggest subjects in this book and it's so amazingly uh, condensed. It doesn't feel like it's boiled down. You give us just enough about everything, yet I could imagine an 800-page book that wouldn't have as much haft as this. Yeah, it wouldn't be nearly as good. This is this, <laughs> no, you're right. <laughs> this is the novella. This is the virtue of the novella, really. I mean, uh, you know... Uh, An uh, underused uh, form in the American literature. Well, uh, the publishing industry is trying very assiduously to suppress its use <laughs> even, even now, but, but there are those of us... <laughs> <laughs> who insist, and it's a workable form for narration, yeah. When I published this book, uh, when I b- turned this book in, th- they were happy for it to be stories. Mm-hmm. 
but when we got around to saying what we were going to put on the front of the book, I said I wanted to put novellas. You could just feel the blood coursing out of their heads because apparently no one reads novellas and apparently they think no one ever did. So we can forget about Heart of Darkness, everything that rises much converged, uh, a good deal of Thomas Mann. So, you know, no one reads, you know, Spotted Horses, uh, you know, apparently those weren't novellas. You know, uh, one of the things I like about your your books, especially this one, is the way you deal with the odd. You have different levels of humor in this book. Some of it's kind of low humor. Very, because I have a fourth grade sense of humor. Should be said. Nine years old is about where I stopped developing. (laughs) I I have this theory that men aged to about 17 to 18, they absolutely stop. If they're lucky. Yeah. And then they immediate, for the next uh, 60 years, they gravitate in a quantum state between 17 and 85. <laughs> well, that's because it's not our fault is how we're culturated. Yeah. We're, we're told that we have to grow up. That's, you know, that's how many, when, when my mother wasn't telling me that I was the comedian, the other thing she was telling me was that I needed to grow up, as if somehow growing up was going to fix everything, or that growing up adulthood was a plane that she was sended to and then therefore after walked across I never found that to be true I just decided that I was going to be one version or other other of a child for the rest of my life and I am you know 70 years old Frost said wonderful he said he said poetry talking about what he wrote poetry is the last vestige of our childhood we must practice it somewhat irresponsibly well I have to say that you managed to do both with these books. I mean, these books are incredibly responsible, and there are things I think this book in, in particular is something that really needs to be read. It says a lot of stuff that a lot of people need to hear, but also a lot of stuff that's really funny, too. Good. That's what I want. If you're going to hear, you know, if you're going to get a dose of castor oil, you should at least get the ice cream. <laughs> yeah. Well, now, um, one of the, you talked about this as being a uh, images and your responses to the devastation caused by Hurricane Sandy. Tell us a little bit about your personal experience of that. Well, my personal experience with Sandy Mm -hmm. in 2012 started with a much more trenchant and thorough experience with Katrina in New Orleans where my wife and I lived. We weren't present for Katrina, but as soon as it happened, we jumped in the car and left our work behind, and she left her job behind, and we went back down to New Orleans and got very much involved in the rebuild. And my wife had been a public official in New Orleans before this. Um, so we saw a lot, very close up, the consequences and devastations of Katrina in New Orleans. So that when Sandy came along in 2012, Uh, I already had a big storage of hurricane Mm, psychic lore. I don't know what the hell it was. I just had a lot of experience in seeing the aftermath of hurricanes. And so here it was again. And I think what happened was that I began to realize that this kind of devastation was not as ungeneralized in the world as I thought. And and that and not that not that calamity or destruction is metaphoric. It's not metaphoric. It's quite literal. And but I realize that that kind of literal, you know, dread and terror and calamity was a lot more prevalent in life than I thought it was. So therefore, it it constituted a subject for me that I wanted to address. You know, uh, one of the things that I, I like is that 
for Frank in this novel, he's retired. But for him, it's kind of apocalypse now. He's, it, the end has come, and he hasn't even really quite sussed it yet. It, that's it, right. That's, well, I mean, maybe that's happening to me. I, 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 try to, I try to ready myself, by which I mean not defend myself or bolster myself against it, but to, 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 you know, to try to plan to be sort of in full stride when, when it happens. A few years ago, I was diagnosed with lymphoma at the Mayo Clinic, and, um, and then about a couple of days later, they said, oops, no, we made a mistake, we're sorry, you don't have lymphoma. But there for a couple of days, I had lymphoma, you know, because that's what they told me. And I, th and I thought to myself at the time, well, this is really interesting. No one's ever told me anything like this before. I guess I'd better start doing something, you know, right now in the sense that I better get on to the things that I want to do because there's nothing I can do to prevent this. It's not the worst thing that happened at the time I was about 65. I thought this is, this is just a wake-up call. And so that in, in essence is what Frank is, Frank is living. He's living close to his own most passionate needs such as they are his wife. And uh, he goes up to Newark Airport and greets soldiers coming back from the war and he reads for the blind and he generally champions himself. I really like uh, your division. You you have an interesting understand psychological understanding of humanity. I mean, you could have just in another uh, reality, you're a preeminent uh, psychologist up on stage telling us why we are the way we are. But this is so much more fun, though. Right? <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> Not so, as lucrative, I suspect, but so much more fun. <laughs> Yeah, I could, yeah, I could actually see you on it doing the whole uh, let me show you the way to find to your own default self. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was kind of interesting to make up the notion of the default self, which is um, a mode of behavior uh, which sort of underlies all other behavior in which you actually try to, to, to be and act the way you would most like to be seen as being and acting. And while that might seem cynical, it would be cynical to a person who believed that there was a kind of essential self that we all represent, which I don't believe. It's, it's, it's actually just trying to get through life doing as well as you can. I, you know, too, I, it, you also have, uh, Frank has lived through many periods of his life. Yes. And he, so I'd like you to talk about uh, his latest period. Well, that, that period, which is beyond the, the period that was described in the lay of the land, which was called the next level, uh, is, the, is this default period. And, and, and it's a, it's a, as I was saying, it's, it's a period uh, in, in, in which he tries to approximate his best idea of himself, both in his own eyes and in the eyes of the few people that he interacts with. For me, it, it, it kind of follows the directive of Sartre, who said that it is for literature to give names to things which are unreflected, but experienced nonetheless, and bring those unreflected experiences up onto the plane of reflection by having a name for them. So that's what I see as my job. When I identify the next level of life, when I identify the default period, uh, I think I'm identifying something that we all do feel as human beings and that we all do experience in trying to do what Seamus Heaney describes as somehow reconciling the circumference with our life, with our life's nucleus. 
So in the first story, I'm here. Frank's past comes back to haunt him in a sense. Well, it comes back to visit him anyway. <laughs> I, I, don't, I haven't thought it was a haunting exactly, although it might seem haunting because it's inconvenient. Oh, sure. Yeah. He has sold a ha- his own house on the Jersey Shore to a man for a pretty penny, which allows him to move away from the Jersey Shore back into the interior of New Jersey to Haddam, where the other books have taken place. And then the hurricane comes along and blows this house all to hell. And the man he sold it to several years before, named Arnie Urquhart, calls Frank up and says, Hey, get over here. You sold this house to me. It's a wreck. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Should I sell it to speculators? Should I rebuild? Should I just cut my losses? I don't know what to do. I need somebody who's apparently disinterested to come over and also who has some responsibility to me a disinterested responsibility to tell the truth. So Frank goes over to the shore as a disinterested bearer of witness. That story has such a wonderful feel to it. You do such a great job in crafting these landscapes of horrific destruction in a minimum of words. And you bring out the emotions that we feel when we're looking at these things. So I'd like you to talk about that in your own, again, hearkening back to your own experience in New Orleans. Well, you know, literature or a description of a, of a devastated landscape such as the Jersey Shore was, is not in competition with reality. And, and neither, is it, neither is it trying to, uh, neither is it trying to, to, to create that experience on the page. It's much freer than that. It, 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 it has many more resources than to be shackled just to what happened. So for me, understanding that what I will put on the page is language and that I have seen many things, I feel quite free to use language as felicitously and as widely as I know how to create an image that is itself vivid and interesting to the reader, whether or not it's, it's completely faithful and apt to what I saw. So for me, it's a writing responsibility. And, and if it works, it ignites something, makes a connection with something in the reader's head that, that then portrays a scene the reader can find plausible. So for me, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a linguistic task, not a reportorial task. You know, and in that sense, that's what makes, I think, fiction in many ways more powerful than nonfiction because the images that we read in fiction, that we experience in fiction, can lodge in our brain like our own memories. And so that I can remember Frank standing there in that field trying to get out of his car. Yes. And the, again, the humor throughout this uh, really makes this a lot easier to take. Well, I think, I think nonfiction is, is probably at its best when it understands what I just said about description. Mm-hmm. I mean, nonfiction's purport is, is, is to represent things as closely as possible to the way they were. And yet, you are dealing with language. Language is innately a, 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 another medium from what you see and what you smell and what you can touch. And, and so, to the extent that nonfiction can, can understand that, that nature of language, the distant nature of language, it, it, it can, I think, achieve its ends even more gracefully. You know, all of these stories, 
a constant presence in these stories is suburbia. Yes. And I love suburbia. I've lived in suburbia all my life. I see nothing wrong with it. And I love your vision of suburbia. So I'd like you to talk about that, how Frank's <coughs> experience has, of it through the years has changed, how yours has changed, and how you played with it in this book. Well, I'm like you, a kid of the suburbs. My suburb was in Jackson, Mississippi, which is kind of a non-suburb in a way, uh, although it was out on the outskirts of town where I lived when I was from the time I was 11. Um, and I liked it too. I, I just thought it was great. Over the course of the intervening years between my 11th year and my 66th, I heard a lot of people decry the suburbs. And there are, and there are conventional wisdoms about the suburbs, and we all know what they are, that they are kind of spiritual cul-de-sacs, that they are arid, that they are, that they are lifeless, that, that they are unimaginative. And yet, we've made them. We've made them, in essence, in our own image and in, in, in response to, to needs that we perceive to have. So it seems to me that the first thing that we should do is, is, is contravene the conventional wisdom about them, take ownership of the fact that we've made these things to suit ourselves, and try to find a way, if, if we can, to say something positive and affirming about them, insofar as those, uh, those utterances will say something positive and affirming about ourselves. So, so Frank, you know, in New Jersey, which most people think of as the back of an old radio, quite, quite unfairly, uh, Frank takes the opposite tack. Frank believes that New Jersey is worth, uh, uh, is, is worth a pay-in really, which is what the sports writer was and what all these other books have been too. It's not without its blemishes, of course, and he credits the view that other people have, but, but, but you know, he's not in denial of his own needs. And maybe that's something that one likes about him. When I was reading these book stories too, and in all your books, one of the things that you look at a lot, and I think this is really interesting to me, it's kind of an outgrowth of the suburbs is that we move there, we have kids, kids grow up, they become adults, and then we have this really peculiar relationship. We're adults with who have a relationship to children who are adults, maybe very different adults from us, and that's a relationship that doesn't get examined much, and I think you do a great job of showing us that the strengths and the very strict limits of those kind of relationships. Between children and their parents. Yeah, the adult yeah. children. Yeah. Well, of course, I don't have children, so, so I'm much more unmoored to experience, <laughs> from experience, than, than, your, than your standard, you know, 70-year-old. I don't have any grandchildren. I can kind of make up those relationships as I can fancy them. I, I, I've never felt the, 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 the twinge of needing to be patient with a child, never felt the twinge of needing to love a child uh, by obligation. I remember one time, and my, my parents were wonderful parents. They loved me. I was an only child. But I remember one time when I was, oh, sub, sub 10, so eight, my mother and I were standing out in the yard, front yard of our house in Mississippi, and I was doing something to drive her crazy, which is what I was, which I was adept at. And all of a sudden, my mother just started running. She ran out of the front yard. We lived next door to the schoolyard. 
And she ran across the schoolyard at a high clip and just went right out of sight behind the school. She ran away from whatever it was. I've never forgotten that. And, and what it, rather than blemish, rather than blight my sensibility about my relationship with my mother, it created such a sense of sympathy in me for her. And what she wanted to do was think, oh my God, get me out of here. I've never forgotten that. It seems so human. It seems so natural. And it, it, it seems so self-preservative in a way to want to do that. I didn't know when she ran around the schoolyard and out across the back behind the school, if she was ever going to come back. And it kind of left me feeling a little terrified, but it's a terror, actually, that I deserved. I was just driving her nuts by being a horrible little boy. So that sense that kids can be horrible, that parents have to preserve themselves, that it's their life going on too, in spite of the fact that they've chosen to bring me into the world, is something that, I, that I've always richly felt and understood, and poignantly felt and understood. One of the more poignant moments of this book is, uh, comes in, everything could be worse when uh, Frank's at home. And it's an interesting, you do some really interesting, the way the stories daisy chain into one another, notionally and with the titles, is really, it's beautiful to, right. to experience. Notionally is a good word because they are notionally integrated. Yeah, they no, they, that's why when I said a novel, it's kind of what it felt like to read it. Yeah. And um, so in the first story, Frank sees his old house, the, the new owner of his old house. And in the second story, the old resident of Frank's current house comes back to pay him a visit. Right. And uh, I, I think that this is a story, too, where somebody wants to, uh, again, inflict a haunting upon Frank. Of, of a kind. At least that's what he is nervous about. Mm -hmm. He's nervous about what this woman is going to do when she comes into his house and for a while inhabits it because right? it was in fact her house at one point when she was when she was a child um, what I think Frank is doing in this story and in all four of these stories he's giving of himself to bear witness he's um, he's using himself to be a kind of archaeologist's uh, hammer left in the picture you know so that, so, so that everything else in the picture can be measured against its known size. So, so really when this woman comes, he stands by and lets her affirm her life in part through his willing presence there, which is what I've learned that very witness actually means. And so in, in order to do that, we have sometimes to be willing to put up with things we don't want to put up with. If we are going to bear witness to the lives and histories of another, it's not always promised that it will be convenient. It's not always promised that it will not leave us wanting or full of longing or full of regret. It happens when there is that sort of subliminal transaction going on between ourselves and others. It's part of being alive. How did you learn to bear witness and when? Oh, that's a good, that's a good question. Rick, I don't know that I ever really did, in a in a ideational way, learn to do it. Um, I mean, I've had very few really close relationships in my life. Um, with my mother, 
with, with my grandfather, with my wife. Um, I guess I have come to understand that one's presence, as close as can be, which for me has been rarely, one's presence in the life of another can be affirming to that other just ipso facto. You know, I, I am there with my wife, and by doing so, I make her understand that she's there. I was there at my mother's bedside when she was dying, and I, I, I think by my presence, confirmed to her that she was still there. And, and there are a lot of other affirming, and there are a lot of other complex emotional transactions that go on when you bear witness, but, but fundamentally that's it. And I learned that mostly, most clearly, in writing this book. You talked about complex emotional reactions. I think that's one of the things this book does incredibly brilliantly and very well, is to describe Frank's really complicated emotional life, inner life, because this idea that it's unusual to embrace opposing sides or something, that's absolutely not the case. We are a mass of completely oppositional beliefs in any given second. Which get reconciled in our personas, mm. in, our, in our personality, and our putative characters. Um, for me, in choosing what to write about, I'm often drawn to what become subjects, but which are just separate, disparate pieces of experience, which don't fit together, and which in fact are sometimes almost alien to each other. For instance, in the third of these stories, The New Normal, Frank is asked to go visit his ex-wife of 30 years in a nursing home, a high-dollar nursing home, where she is suffering from Parkinson's. Um, it seemed to me that it was almost implausible that a person would be asked to do that. Oh no, it seems just all too well, terrifyingly possible. Well, it becomes, <laughs> at least it, become, it became possible for me when I wrote it. It's because I don't have any experience mm. like that. It's, 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 it's not part of my kit. But the, the story came from my, a friend of mine, a very close friend of mine, who had been married to a woman many years ago. And then she died long after they'd divorced. And he, was, and he and she were not close anymore. And yet he was moved by her death, and affected by her death, enough to tell me about it. And I thought, there is, a, there is a quotient of emotion in here and a quotient of intelligence in here that nothing he's said and nothing that my experience has ever acquainted me with. So this is, the, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a notion of, uh, of, of Umberto Echoes. He says, those things that we cannot theorize about, we must narrate. I couldn't theorize about what my friend might be feeling or what kind of different filaments there might be in all of these, in all of this circuitry of, of, of emotion and feeling and regret and memory. So I thought, write about that. Write about that. <laughs> you know, too, this story is hilarious. Yes. Yeah, I think it is quite funny. It, it's very funny. Um, so it, it centers around some paintings she has, yes. some of the best parts. So I'd like you to talk about it. Did you ever see paintings like that? Is well, that this, in this passage when he goes to see his former wife, Anne, who lives in this very high-end elder care facility, which is 
feng shui approved furniture and earth tones all over and little monitors and sensors all over the walls which 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 calibrate her you know her blood pressure and her her mentation and all these things she has put on the wall uh, four pictures of sliced fruit and he begins to think these pictures of sliced fruit look like vaginas and and it completely unnerves him and at the same time somewhat arouses him when he sees these pictures and when he realizes is, is that his ex-wife is sort of throwing down the gauntlet in front of him about her sexuality. Not even that she's trying to induce him to take an interest in her. She's just wanting to say to him, this is where it is with me. I have these pictures of vaginas on my wall and so you just have to get used to it. <laughs> It's it's really a lot of fun, it, and that it's brings, meant to be. <laughs> that brings me to another aspect of this book. In your prose, you talk you talk, and we'll talk a little bit about this notion later about discarding words and words and phrases we need to get rid of. And I can't say I agree more with most of them. One of the words that you talk about uh, that you use very well and that you don't discard and we're going to go straight out of broadcastability is fuck. Yes. You are a master of using that word in a way that is appropriate, hilarious, and you know, it makes the novel really fun to read. Well, I, I come by it honestly. I, I, I was playing squash last year at the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association, and I, whenever I would lose a point, I realized that I was always saying that word. And, 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 there's, and, and there was a woman outside the squash court. And, and when we got finished playing, she looked at me very distressed, and she said, your language is atrocious, she said. Where did, you, where did you learn to think it was all right to speak that way? I said, my mother taught me. You got a problem with my mother? <laughs> so so it's, 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 always, it's always been... It's, it's always been in my bag of tricks to use that word. And I mean, I, you know, we have to be, as Mallarmé said, uh, sort of trying to constantly, in whatever he said, enhance the language of the tribe. And so I, I, I like to take words that have fallen into disuse and disrepair and um, become inappropriate and bring them back onto the stage in some, in some new way. Profanities not being the only ones. No, no. I'd like you, too, to talk about this notion of throwing away words. Yeah. This is a really great idea. You I know, we're, we're, we're afflicted by language as much as we are in love with it. And so there are all these words that are floating around in our hearing and often in our own speech which need to be thrown out. <laughs> I mean, for instance, the word share. When someone says, I will call, I will call Betty up and share this with her. No, just tell her. Just tell her. You don't have to share it. You know, the word hydrate. Just, just say drink. It, it's, it, it's okay. When someone does something nice for you and you say thank you and they say no problem, it's all right to just say you're welcome. That, that's all right. You can say those things. You don't have to always have some offending sort of can opener word to sort of pry my ear off. So I have a whole, you know, I have a whole... Do you want to read that passage? I will read that passage. I, it's... Um, it's really enjoyable, all <laughs> the entire book, but let's hear that one. In recent years, I've begun compiling a personal inventory of words 
that in my view should no longer be usable in speech or any form. This in the belief that life's a matter of gradual subtraction aimed at a solider, more nearly perfect essence after which all mentation goes and we head off to our own virtual chillicothes. A reserve of fewer, better words could help, I think, by setting an example for clearer thinking. It's not so different from moving to Prague and not learning the language so that the English you end up speaking to make yourself understood bears a special responsibility to be clear, simple, and value-bearing. When you grow old as I am, you pretty much live in the accumulations of life anyway. Not that much is happening, except on the medical front. Better to strip things down, and where better to start stripping than the words we choose to express our increasingly rare, increasingly vagrant thoughts. It would be challenging, for instance, for a native Czech speaker to fully appreciate the words poop or friggin, or the phrase, we're pregnant, or what's the takeaway, or for that matter, awesome, when it only means tolerable, or preemie, or mentee, or legacy, or no problem when you really mean you're welcome. That was <laughs> I almost said it. Richard Ford reading in the voice of Frank Bascom from his new book. That Let was really Richard reading in his own voice, pretty much, I think. <laughs> <laughs> he, Frank and I occasionally, Frank and I occasionally share a point of view. <laughs> there's, there's more than a few of that here, more than a bit of that in this book, I think. One constant and enjoyable for me undercurrent is the way you percolate through here politics and the economy. Uh, Frank is a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat, and he doesn't like all the Republicans he's living with. That's right. That's right. He does. He finds them to be tedious and boring and logic-chopping and basically Neanderthalic. <laughs> and so, and so for, for me, it's just a perfect opportunity to sort of tee off on these guys because that's the way I feel about them, too. <laughs> also, I don't, I don't, you know, it's, I don't want imaginative literature in, in any way to seem... Um, alien from issues of larger public life. I mean, I think, I, I think a political novel, which is what I think all of these novels, these Frank Bascom novels are, is constantly showing how history affects the lives of individuals. And, 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 and for that to be available to a reader, I think is, is, a, is an opportunity to make the reader feel more in touch with the larger context that he or she lives in and less apt to be alienated from it and isolate from it. I mean, we have this problem in America, as we all know. We have this vast land mass and all of these disparate states and great distances between the seat of government and this, where we have our county seat. Anything that can happen to make us feel more a part of a whole and less, and less alienated from the whole is good, it seems to me. It's what's causing people not to vote. It's what's causing people to feel dissatisfied and disenchanted with politics and our politicians. That and the fact that most of our politicians are morons. <laughs> but they're millionaire morons. But they get, to be, they get to be politicians and they get to be leaders as morons because people don't feel the efficacy of their own franchise their efficacy of their own citizenship. And, and these novels have a real pragmatic feel to the writing. I mean, I feel like when Richard Ford is sitting down to write as Frank Bascom, there's a real pragmatism going on here. As a writer, you want to kind of do this and say that, and, you, and you're 
really pretty much know what the heck is going on. That's right. That and that's exactly right. Because whether I'm good at it or not, whether it was, whether I'm successful at it or not, I'm trying to write something that the reader will find useful, um, useful in the ways, the the, the, the really um, ambitious ways that F. R. Leavis talks about in an essay that he wrote about D. H. Lawrence when he said that literature is the supreme means by which we renew our sensuous and emotional life and learn a new awareness. I want to write stories that do that. Well, this absolutely does this because you put us so much and so perfectly and so entertainingly and engagingly in Frank's brain. And we walk four miles in his shoes in this book, or more really, in his shoes in this book. You can't help but walk away from this book and not know a lot more about what's happening in America today. This is absolutely best time capsule novel of this year. Oh, well, that's good. I'm, I'm, glad for, I'm glad for you to say that, because if I could, that's, that's one of the uses that I would like this book to be put to, apart from just being a yuck. Oh, <laughs> it absolutely achieves that, too. I mean, uh, 200 years from now, they'll unthaw this from the freeze-dry, and they'll read this for, <laughs> they'll read this in Mad Magazine. <laughs> I hope they read Mad first, because I did, and I know moreover, I would. <laughs> <laughs> um, in in this novel too, uh, you give us a vision of aging in America, and I, I really like it because Frank is a, in one place and is aging, and all the other people around him are in different, similar kind of orbits. So we get the feeling of being on the freeway, and somebody's passing us really quickly. Somebody's kind of dragging behind. That's right. Well, you know, though, Rick, I didn't think of this no, these, no, these novellas as being about aging because I have decided, whether it's true or not, I've decided this, that I am eight, at age 70, not aging any faster than I was when I was 39. I'm just getting closer to death. But that doesn't have anything to do with aging. I might have been closer to death at 39 and just didn't know it than I am now. So I was just really trying to write about life at this particular numerical slot. And, and it didn't have, to me, so much to do with aging. Um, and to the extent that, that age and, and an awareness of age is, is, is pertinent to this book, it's largely a source of humor. Because I, don't, I actually, personally, I don't... I don't I don't see any. I don't see any reason that we should rue age. I don't see any reason that, that that we should run from the notion of age. I was reading in the New York Times yesterday, flying down here from Seattle, that that, that most gerontologists believe that as people get older, they get happier. That in fact, I mean, and that of course excludes people who have, you know, morbid diseases and and, and who are who are going to die as we all are. And it excludes probably, you know, those end-of-life periods. But just to be old, as I'm getting to be, if I'm not already, just to be old can generally mean that you're less worried about things, that you're more capable of dealing with things, that you can forget a lot of things that happen that no longer need to thwart you, that your life, as Frank is trying to make his, is winnowed down to the more essential elements. I mean, I, mean, I, I you know... My greatest longing these days, when I'm particularly when I'm away from home, is to be with my wife. 
I, I feel like it's much more intense now than it ever was, and we've been together for almost 51 years. Well, that's so interesting because this novel has a real feeling of being, or these stories, <laughs> Uh, that's a okay. Real, a real feeling. This novel has a real feeling of being centered. I mean, Frank is is really he's in the groove in this book, and yes, he's not wandering in this book. No, no, he's, not at all. He knows where he is. He knows where he's going. He's not making any big decisions. I, I and I like that about him. That means I think that that must be my view of being old. That you are, in fact, somewhat centered in your life. I mean, he, in that passage that I was reading about getting rid of your friends, he eventually comes down to say that since really having friends is a matter of how much time you can spend, that he figures you can spend, that you can have about five friends, given the amount of hours there are in a day. And when he calibrates it down, there's one portion left. And of one, one portion of time left for one remaining friend, and he decides to make himself that friend, that he decides to champion himself, as he says, call his own number. So that what he does is he centers himself, not in a narcissistic way, but in a kind of um, time-constrained time inevitability. He, he centers himself so as to pay attention to himself. I, I really like the story, the, the Deaths of Others, which is, uh, he goes back and meets an old friend from his sports writer days. Yes. And, and this is, it's both really sweet, it's really funny, <laughs> and it's somewhat and frightening. really horrible. Yeah. Yeah, because the guy's <laughs> miserably dying. Yes. Because the guy has just got, I think he has pancreatic cancer, and he's going down fast, and he wants to have Frank come over and visit him, which Frank definitely does not want to do, but he's so close, and the guy seems so pathetic that he thinks it'll make him feel worse not to go than he will end up feeling if he does. And so he goes in with some trepidation and tries to keep himself, albeit while he's present, a little bit psychically distant from what's going on. And then, of course, he basically runs into a kind of a buzzsaw of emotion because the guy has some terrible news to lay on. And what I like about that story, and I think this book in general, one of the kind of character types you capture really well is the American boor. <laughs> Thank you. You couldn't say anything nicer to me because I feel like, I, you know, when people say to me, you know, there's, there's the old saw, he doesn't suffer fools well. What I think about myself is, I suffer fools about as well as any human being possibly could. <laughs> well, thank you for suffering this much, <laughs> because I think I probably asked you at some point that question about when the novels, when you know if the novels done. <laughs> well, that's okay. But see, I, I, I don't look at other people that way. Huh. I look at other people as if they were actually living a life just like mine. <laughs> Well, that's they're, they're they're not subordinate to me. Mm. They're 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 not you know they're not in orbit around me. I think that they're just another person. So I look at them, uh, I look at everybody as an equal. And so when you do that, if they bore you, and you know of course people will bore you. There's something going on in America now these days which I don't really understand, which makes everybody talk a lot more than they should. <laughs> and and I listen. I just listen, but I think to myself sometimes, Jesus Christ, when are you going to stop talking? But I listen. Yeah, the, it's the conversation where one half of it, con, your oh. half of it consists of, uh-huh. Uh-huh. 
everybody's just standing in line waiting yeah. to tell their part. Yeah, you're just going to say uh-huh for about 20 minutes. And but you know, you can, you, you, you can think that that's tragedy or you can think that it's comedy. So I've decided that it's comedy. <laughs> it's certainly comedy in your, <laughs> in your prose writing hands and you give us a, one of the buzzsaws he has to, uh, Frank has to encounter is an odious little man named Fike. Fike. I love that guy. Oh, good. Fike is a little, Fike is a little Church of Christ uh, preacher who doesn't, because he's a miserable little bore, he doesn't have a congregation and no one would give him a congregation. So what he does is he floats around Haddam doing sort of secondary sort of pastoral duties. He, he officiates at funerals of people who never went to church. He, he officiates at weddings of people who don't have a religion. He, he, just, he just does all of these sort of second, as I say, secondary kinds of pastoral duties. And I, I have known a few people like that because I lived in Princeton for a long time. And Princeton has a, has a rather estimable seminary. And it actually pushes too many seminarians out into the world with, with, with pastoral degrees and pastoral experience who don't have any congregations. So they're just kind of wandering around the world trying to understand what they can do with what they know. I mean, I have a friend in New Orleans, for instance, who's a Presbyterian minister. He's never had a, he's never had a congregation. Nobody would ever let him have a congregation. And so what he does is he does walking tours of the French Quarter. So I, I have a lot of experience with, with, this, with, his, with this kind of human being. I actually kind of like them. I, I thought he was great. He was so, he was so much fun. And, and was, awful in a way, too. Yes, yes. And, and that's what I think you do a great job, is at capturing the both halves of that equation, which is essential to making either half Very tolerable. Much. You know, my view is that for drama to be good, the villain, or if you prefer, the bore, the villain must say things that make sense. And so Fike, if you just fob Fike off in the book and say you're an execrable little bore, and you, then the, the question comes up, well, then why are you in this book? Are you just in this book to be blasted out of the water? No, he's actually in the book because he says provocative things and because Frank takes him seriously and because they have a kind of exchange, which is what we do with people, a try. I like that they because you met, said something really important that Frank takes him seriously. A Frank takes everybody he yes, talks he to seriously, and that's one of the things that makes him such a, a fascinating character. He takes us as readers seriously. He does, and I, I you know, that's that's good news to to to, to me. I think um, that I am his author because I'm dyslexic, and when you are dyslexic, is to the degree that I am, which is not severe, if I don't pay attention to what people say to me, if I don't really look at them, tune myself into them, everything in my brain becomes a blur. I, I, don't, I don't register anything at all. And so when people are talking to me, I'm listening to what they're saying, irrespective of whether they're talking importantly or if they're talking blabber or if they're saying things that are funny I have to listen or I don't hear anything at all. So I listen and I think I think listening to people, whether it's done whether it's done out of good intentions or in my case just to try to be sure that I understand what is being said to me, listening to people is what others want. It's a mode of respect. 
I've been speaking with Richard Ford. His new novel is Let Me Be Frank With You. Thank you for joining me, Richard. Great pleasure, Rick. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.